Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers, your premier podcast for cargo prophecy and media hygiene. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sackness. I'm Chris, how the hell are you doing on this beautiful, well, it's beautiful here afternoon in Oklahoma? It's a beautiful day here, too, David. It really is. It's getting colder. Uh, this is, I'm going to just remind everyone, a crucial anniversary in American history. Uh, something very important happened on Elm Street in a yes, little sir. town called Dallas, you know. And I visit it every time I go. I visit that museum. You know, it's, uh, I, I just, uh, I, I can't uh, believe that anyone thinks that we've gotten past that. And I, you know, like a lot of people have tried, but uh, I did happen to find myself back up the road uh, at Area 51, and it's cold up in Rachel, Nevada, on the edge of the extraterrestrial highway, and the skies are busy, and yeah. I just, you know, I, I understand people who aren't into the mythology of lost UFOs and uh, tentacled people, creatures, and strange experiments in uh, subterranean laboratories. I get all that. But I can tell you there is something going on there that uh, is of a concern. And the fact that we don't know anything about who's in charge there on this day, the anniversary of JFK's death, and then you look at the media murk and mush of what the headlines are uh, at the moment. Uh, and that's kind of the mood that I'm in. The perfect mood for podcasting. I have been seeing so many screenshots from airline message boards, message boards where pilots can go to report, uh, you know, this and that, help each other out. Hey, watch out for this. Uh, bumpy weather this way and they have been flooded with pilots observing multiple strange lights in the sky so the alien factor is really heating up uh, that coincides nicely with uh, the appearance of a navy fighter pilot on the joe rogan experience who describes the strange uh, it's always described as a black cube inside of a translucent orb that moves in ways that we can't essentially so your alien vibes at the very least are right there with the zeitgeist right now there's something there's something going on i can feel it it's the collective unconscious it really is and as damaged as it is and as infected as it may be, I think there are some beautiful uh, analogy metaphors working through there. It remains, uh, you know, the informing field of culture. And there yep. is no escape. Uh, and to even yeah. think that that's possible, I think, is, is, is very uh, wrong-headed, you know, to say the least. Yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't get away from it. So before we get into our media hygiene, social commentary, Thanksgiving, lots of slashes in this episode, uh, we start off the show with Chris giving us the name of a band, a completely made up band, usually with a fun uh, amalgam of different 
genres and styles and also an aphorism. So do you have those for us today, sir? I do. Uh, I, I've got one serious band called Root Canal, and uh, their, their album is The Last Guitar, which is kind of an elegy for the iconic power of the electric guitar, which I think is officially waning, if not dead now. Uh, but I've been revisiting back. some of the, the greats, you know, uh, of the past. And a lot, I've realized how many great guitarists that I don't really know because they were kind of working in idioms that, that I, you know, like metal, for instance. Uh, yes. so a lot of really good things. But I do have a fun one, though. And this is a really twisted concept for our twisted time. Okay. The band name is Cocktail Sausage. And their album is called <laughs> Looking for the Inner You. But what they've done, we, you know, we have stories within stories. That's a, that's a trope of, of, of novels and, and, and fiction generally. And it's certainly one of the highlights of, uh, or sort of hallmarks of postmodernism. Well, this is a concept album about a mythical group and their concept album. So, Cocktail Sausage, in their album, Looking for the Inner You, their subject is a lost male vocal group of Argyle sweater-wearing guys called the Peptones, who recorded a mysterious album in the 60s called Big Girls in Sweaters. And... <laughs> <laughs> it appears to be a kind of Kingston trio, uh, kind of non-California Beach Boy knockoff of uh, bright white teeth, you know, male vocals from a pre-counterculture moment. But within Big Girls in Sweaters is a story of a horrific series of murders at a sorority house in a Midwestern college. And it's actually a murder mystery where there are mm -hmm. clues to the perpetrator and the motivations, the reason behind. And it's quite an insidious murder mystery story couched totally in terms of beautiful vocal harmonies and a kind of upbeat, boppy, uh, mid early 60s sort of uh, male vocal group presentation, but done by Cocktail Sausage today. And with all of the gimmicks and EQs and all of the, the recording sort of wizardry that can be applied to kind of deconstruct that innocence, which is really about this horrific murder, and to create just a complete head twist. So you don't know when you're listening if this is fun nostalgia and a comment on lost innocence or if it's uh, a really jagged uh, stainless steel knife into the throat and heart of all of those sort of media ideals. So that's my band. 
Excellent. I love that. Layers upon layers yeah. upon layers. I also just like the name Cocktail Sausage. Yeah, thank there's you. A lot of, uh, there's a lot of phallic imagery in there, and then the play on Cocktail Sauce and Sauce. I mean, it's just it works on a lot of different levels. I'm really interested in the idea as well of more bands inhabiting personalities. You know, you had David Bowie doing yes. that back in the day. You have Prince reinventing himself as the artist formerly known as Prince. Madonna has done it more times than you can count. But today it's like, I've never in my life, and this is a point of pride for me, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm bragging a little bit. I've never heard a Taylor Swift song. But my I am so glad you mentioned that because I was going to raise that. I was going to raise she's that exact same, right? point. She's she's basically this as far as far as my you know, don't cut this the Swifties as her fan base is called is currently at the head of a major lawsuit against Ticketmaster because of their surge pricing, their price gouging for the tickets. Some of the tickets for the front row for some of these shows got up to twelve thousand dollars because of demand, and there's a huge antitrust suit now. That's being led by these insane Taylor Swift fans. So please, for the love of God, do not come after me. I'm just saying she appears to be the same artist that she's always been. Everybody's kind of just planted their flag, haven't they? Well, here was the, the way the. I'm so glad you mentioned this, though. This is a really interesting, just really major synchronicity because we had not mentioned or talked about this uh, right before we uh, turned on the mics. Uh, but it's been on my mind because because the Ticketmaster master fiasco has been in the news. She's often in the news, and she just cleaned up at the AMA Awards uh, to some mm-hmm. sort of record total. Mm-hmm. And I was in a discussion uh, with a colleague about you know how music and popular culture at large has changed. And I, I said to him, look, let's not get into any question of music quality or, or any aspects of the music business in the sense that it makes, you know, you're, it's easy to get recorded or out there. It's very hard to monetize it. Forget all that stuff. I said, I just simply wonder how someone can be as famous as Taylor Swift is. And I have never once heard a song of hers with I, I've listened to one video with great intent I went out and, and just made myself listen to it but it wouldn't have been possible in in the year 2000 and I think as late as 2010 for someone to be that well known in the in any idiom of popular music and for you to have never never heard I mean I I can't think of any other major star. I can I can run off five or six, you know, maybe ten other names. I've I've at least been exposed to them just in passing, you know, in restrooms, yeah. in in airports, in restaurants, you know. Uh, yeah, I've heard more from the from the band Smash Mouth than I've heard from Taylor Swift. See, I just don't understand how, and I think this is mysterious. I think this is mysterious of how popular culture is working and and who's really in charge of it. Uh, I mean, it's, uh-huh. yeah. you know, who's in charge is, is the theme, I think, you know. 
Yeah, no, the astroturfing of celebrities is extremely interesting to me. It's a rabbit hole that I don't go down very often because it can get a little depressing as a you know struggling artist myself who does not have the type of connections. So, I mean, I know a bit of the lore, the Taylor Swift lore, which is that her father bought a huge stake in the record company that ended up putting her albums out. Uh, it was a bought and paid for scenario. Um, so I wonder, you know, where does that stop exactly? It, when does the, the money flow really stop? But yet, your, your point is very well taken because like I said, I couldn't name you a single song of hers. I could name you a song by uh, other contemporary artists like Ariana Grande or Rihanna or, you know, some of these other ones. I've heard those Cardi songs. B. Uh, I mean, on and on, Cardi actually. Cardi B, Carly Rae Jepsen, but I have no clue uh, what a tail I don't know what her singing voice sounds like. I, I couldn't pick it out of a lineup. It's very, very mysterious how all of this works. I mean, it really. I mean, it wouldn't be mysterious if she weren't, you know, seen as as so big, so award winning, and uh, you know, kind of one of those celebrities, you know, who's famous for being famous. I mean, no one knows what. Right. You know, the Kardashians right. do. They, they don't do anything. They just pose. They're just models. But, I mean, Taylor Swift yeah. is presented as a, as a musical artist. And I just, I, I don't know. I mean, like, I mean, think about it. I mean, Alanis Morissette, you couldn't go anywhere at one point and not have heard, you know, you know, when, when Jaggy right. Little Pill came out. At least it was everywhere. You know, you think, okay, and it's really annoying and stupid. But... It, you know, you knew what the songs were, and on and on and on. And I think that, that it's just absolutely peculiar. Um, I mean, it's almost you could. I mean, you could do a novel or a film where there actually wasn't any music. It was a total conceptual artist thing of, you know, <laughs> like a John Cage. Thing. Yeah, like there's nobody really. There was. There's never anything really there. It's just. It's just a myth, yeah. you know, that everyone's participating in, you know? There's, there's a podcast that I've tried to get into, and I'm, I'm going to speak negatively of it, so I won't say what the podcast is, but it should be right up our alley. This person will talk about uh, conspiracies and ancient aliens and all the kind of fun uh, reality tunnel stuff that I love going down. So it, it's it, it's like a podcast that's made to be listened to by me. But the host of the show, uh, do, he doesn't have an annoying voice. He does. It's it's not aggravating. It doesn't grate on me. But whenever he starts talking, I tune out. You know, like when you tune out on a long drive that you've been down that you've done. I should say, you know, five or six times, and your brain just goes on autopilot. You stop paying attention. That's what happens as soon as I hear the sound of this person's voice. I'm immediately sent into dreamland, right? Doesn't put me to sleep. I just I can't there I can't get any of the, the semantic quality from, from what he's saying. Maybe that's what's happening with Taylor Swift songs. Maybe we have heard them, but they just our brains refuse to register them. It's a possibility. It, you know, it reminds me of the phenomenon of velocitized, to be velocitized, which is a real phenomenon. It's very documentable. I remember ages and ages ago, there were a lot of, of comedians making jokes when the California speed limit 
about adjusted down to 55 miles an hour. And the joke was always people uh-huh. would, you know, were getting out of their cars because they thought they were parked, you know? Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we've just become velocitized to a certain level of nonsense and that the that yeah. major parts mm-hmm. of the carnival are going invisible on us because we just, yeah. you know, we just can't deal with it anymore. We're, we're at carnival overload, you know? Uh, I'd love that. Yeah. Velocitizing, that's the yeah. word? Okay, I'm adding that to the, I'm adding that to the, <laughs> to the dictionary. Uh so your aphorism for today okay well if the band idea is a little bit complicated and is kind of built on the metaphor of overdubbing to the point where you forget what the original track was and you're just lost in these layers the aphorism is really really straightforward our commitment today is to know as little about the past as we absolutely can get away with that leads us into the show. It does. I, I think it I, you know. I think it does. We we talk a lot on this show about I've used the word uh, or the phrase I should say twice now, but I'll say it a third time, media hygiene. And Chris brought up at the top of the show the assassination of JFK, big historical events. Uh, and we've touched in the past on how a disconnection from a sense of history leads to this evil twin version of the constant living in the present where you don't have any real grip on the story or the narrative of of our lives where we fit in terms of history and so you end up shooting wildly at whatever target is placed in front of you by whoever has the power to do so so that's kind of the frame, I think, of what we're going to be talking about here. Because there's a lot going on in the news right now that is shocking to me for how how little it matters compared to some, some bigger picture things that are going on. Absolutely. And it all hinges on the rise of that one seemingly in- innocuous word narrative i mean really just anyone can do a little bit of linguistics uh research on that and just find how that has escalated in use and then if you just unpackage that a little bit you start to see for starters how disgustingly different it is from the magic and power of story which is a very simple word uh, or myth, you know, it's it's none of those things, yeah. and yet it's it's even more insidiously predetermined, predigested, scripted, uh, kind of. It's you can disagree with the narrative, but you can't escape anymore the frame of narratives coming at you, and our sense mm-hmm. of psychic defense and media hygiene is really an attempt to help listeners and ourselves deal with that because it is. The, the fallout viral crisis of our time. We're dealing with uh, a gigantic explosion within the collective unconsciousness of, of, of America, at least, but the larger Western world. Uh, and then also, the, the, of course, the, the, the metaphor of, of any kind of virus is, is going to be inescapable. And I think the two are related, but we've got now 
the, the narrative virus, which is kind of the fallout, the spiritual nuclear fallout of some gigantic explosion in the American collective unconsciousness, and one of the milestone anchor point moments, reference points, a compass reference point, I think was the JFK assassination, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And we I mean, can't recover. Can't, you can't be more on the money. Yeah, you, you can't recover. Exactly. So when we're talking about, we've talked about headlessness in terms of its positive qualities, in terms of organizations not necessarily having a head and being more evenly distributed. Uh, headlessness is, there's a whole headless right that Aleister Crowley famously did at the Pyramid in Giza in the 1940s, I believe. But the, the annihilation of the head, of the head of state, is really too potent a metaphor to, to just walk past. Totally. Well, and the and then the narratives. I mean, isn't I mean that's certainly a crucial moment in mainstream media where the the idea of narratives uh, and their relationship to conspiracy theories start just absolutely bubbling, you know, like this yeah. huge right. vat that DuPont is mixing up or someone, you know, they're, they're mixing up a real weird stew of dark alchemical chaos mm-hmm. with chaos as the goal, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's, it really brings to mind an image of a huge oil field because Dallas is famously as big as it is due to the oil industry and having the head of, of, our, of our nation go down to one of its most productive oil towns. And I just see, you know, JFK being shot and like all these tentacles coming out and spreading out into the world. Like his head was full of ghosts or something, right? And the, the, the blast from the rifle just sort of, you know, his, his dead mind turned into a mind virus that then began infecting everyone. There weren't, as far as I know, there weren't conspiracy theories about, you know, John Wilkes Booth, right? It really started with, uh, with Lee Harvey Oswald, and people started, you know, wondering like what, like what's going on? How did this happen? You know, there's famously one of the rhetorical strategies that sort of anti-conspiracy theorists people like to use is that. The human mind just can't accept that a lone gunman could take down the head of the United, the president of the United States, and I think it's, I think it's just the, I think something very strange and alchemical happened with that particular, particular assassination that uh, you've mentioned in the past might have had its precursor in the detonation of nuclear bombs. Uh, that just changed the way we think. It actually altered the way our brain processes information. David Lynch famously, in his Twin Peaks The Return, has as a centerpiece the detonation of the, of the nuclear bomb in New Mexico as a, as a key point when the, the bad stuff came into, into our world. That's when the, the evil, like Judy is her name, Judy and Bob came into the world. Wow. Well, you know, I mean, it's just it, we, we see things getting just completely 
Whoa. Well, uh, think about Starfish Prime for a moment. Okay? Star a high-altitude nuclear test <laughs> conducted on July 9th, 1962. I mean, who green-lighted that idea? You know? I mean, what could go wrong, right? right. I mean, really? <laughs> yeah. Do we do yeah, we even know who actually uh, uh, approved that? I I don't think so. And I mean, the Johnston Atoll, which is uh, where it ha you know it's out in the middle of of Micronesia, out in just the lost Pacific. I mean, talk about needing the tangs. You know, this is where that that whole idea comes from, and. Operate Starfish Prime is, is the official name of it, and anyone, uh, and there, this was not the first of the high altitude nuclear tests. Some of the other ones yeah. were Yucca, Teak, and Orange. There were three Argus. I mean, notice all this. the The naming is just phenomenal. So there's this weird lyrical and mythological sort of mindset behind the people you know, involved in it. And Oppenheimer, you know, his great quote, I've become, you know, like God, you know, it's just on and on this just absolutely bizarre Cold War uh, explosion of psychic energy that, well, how could that not go crazily wrong? And we're still feeling yeah. the aftershocks of that. I mean, that, this is what we're living. We're living in after echo, after image, and aftershock, you know? Yeah, it's like the internet was the shell that we put the ghost in. Ooh, nice. So we yes. Had the ghost running around, and then the internet was this uh, perfect cyborg mech suit that we put the, the spirit into, you know? And then, and then it had some kind of of harness and i think to move into our you know media media hygiene stuff you know the the real battle and i do consider it a battle it's it's a you know alex jones was right on the money when he called his show info wars he was tapped into something with that because there is a real struggle whether it's republican democrat rich poor you know elites versus the plebes there's a there's a war to see who can control the shell that this ghost is inside of now it's the most important thing going on right now i think and that's why we talk about you know people focusing too much i think you know going getting absolutely hysterical over you know elon musk taking over twitter which is just a nothing it's a nothing story you know and then the ways in which some stories which might be a little bit more important seem to curiously just disappear i mean did you hear anything at all after that crazy guy ran over those people at the christmas parade you remember the news yes story i do i about? do and it i mean where did that it, go it, isn't that important well why isn't it as important one could you know conservatively say and it just is there is there is no rhyme or reason uh, there is a deep, dark, weird uh, alchemical algorithm at work of why these things disappear and why something, you know, remains important in certain frames. But it's completely bizarre. It's certainly not logical. It's not logical on any level of the number of people affected, the influences. Uh, it's, it's just, it's all about some 
bizarre uh, and, and really not very well formed rhetorical position. There, there's a, there are maps and game plans that are in, in operation, but God only knows who constructed them. And, and really, if they think that anyone is, uh, is fooled by them, but we get these multiple layers of you know, distortion and camouflage and on and on and on. And the, I think that, that uh, the only sober, overarching uh, objective one can see is simply to uh, create a, enough confusion that people simply stop seeing and, and thinking in certain ways. So that certain, as in our kind of our, our show, The Haunted, so that, that premise that we were brainstorming about last episode, things become structurally invisible, you know? We're not in some game right. simulation, we're in reality. And the mechanisms are the manipulation of media profile. And once something loses profile, it appears to vanish. The velocitizing of media, yeah. basically. Um, <clears throat> I, I'm interested, and I'm sure that the listeners are interested in this too. So when you open up your desktop and you are looking at the news how are you practicing media hygiene what are your practices for discerning what's important and what isn't and as a sub question how do you discern what's true and not true what how do you figure out what you believe well, true and not true, I put aside. I don't think I think those are epistemologically too right. difficult to deal with. What I believe is another sort of matter, and that that is inherently pragmatic and uh, well downstream of, of any larger notion of the truth. Um, I mean, I th truth is not uh, well. People say, well, it's relative. I, I just don't think that the boundaries of that can clear, be clearly defined unless the truth seeker yeah. is particularly energetic and articulate in defining about what's going on. I think if, you, if you're really right. willing to put in the yeah. time and go, well, I want to know the truth about X, and I really have defined X very clearly, then presumably if you have some intellect and some resources and the time it's basically a time exercise to, to do some research and to do some digging of your own, then you might be mm -hmm. able to access some degree of, of uh, quasi-objective truth about X, that, whatever that topic might be. But your choice of topic mm -hmm. is very important in that. But in terms of my media practices, what I do... Um, and I've recommended this when I've been teaching uh, formerly in a media studies department which is supposedly one of the best in America and I'm I wish I could report that that's true uh, I don't think that mm -hmm. is true I think that's a good example of uh, an organization institution claiming something and not delivering on it but I, I jump I, I, I try to look at extremes uh, I, I for instance I immediately will, will check out both Fox News and NPR because I think they're on radically different ends of a spectrum uh, and I see what stories even get attention uh, how long a story uh, will persist 
in terms of uh, you know where it fits into the bulletin. Uh, how quickly does it does it vanish? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I think that's yeah. one of the the key. Um, I'm interested very much in, in virality as a, a social media phenomenon. Things can have an incredible sudden pervasiveness, but there seems to be um, some sort of weird inverse relationship that they can also disappear just as quickly. Um, and I think that's kind of interesting, how, how quickly the pebble can sink and the ripples stop, you know? Uh, so that's certainly one thing I do. Um, I don't think that we can uh, look at particular uh, writers and media experts anymore the way we used to. I mean, I, I, I have been in my downtime going back and looking at, uh, well, things like late night talk shows in the 70s and 80s. Unfortunately, there's a lot of video mm -hmm. reference on that. You look back and and on the quality of the of the the guests and the content. I was my I started this of, of late looking at. Um, I'm contributing a piece to the loss of influence of literature in popular culture, and I just happened to do a little bit of checking into the appearance on mainstream television television of Kurt Vonnegut, Truman Capote, Tennessee Williams, Susan Sontag, uh, and William F. Buckley Jr. I mean, he's the only conservative figure in that group. But we don't have the, I mean, and what kind of author would we have getting that kind of attention? They certainly wouldn't get the relaxed, you know, discussions of real adult content that, that were had then. So, that's by way of, of answering. I look to see how the media presentation today differs in any kind of really uh, quantitative way that can be discussed, you know, in an argumentative sense. Uh, from my uh, college years, say, my 20s into my 30s, that's when things began to really just devolve. Uh, and I think there's a lot of agreement within media studies that the rise of CNN, the rise of cable, CNN, Fox, that began to shift the, the degree of, of interesting adult content in uh, news discourse, you know, and, and partisanship began to uh, accelerate greatly and market segmentation. Um, but the other thing I do is I look, I look at the ads, and I look at sponsored content. Oh, advertisements. Yes, you know, yes, yes. I really think that's mm -hmm. vital because we, this, and there's a point coming up in my, uh, my tip for the, this episode that deals with um, paid content. But I think that that becomes invisible, and we just sort of shoot past it, and we forget because we're so bombarded by these little, th you know, it's all clickbait, it's all, are you interested? Because, you, you know, da, 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 da. we forget that going back to the rise of mass communications and certainly the establishment of television, there was a very clear message. This is brought to you by our sponsors. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. 
and and we lose right. that. I mean, everyone was clear about that. It was the Chrysler or whatever TV out. You know, that was the real mm -hmm. thing. That mm -hmm. the the content, so to speak, wasn't really the content at all, and never purported to be. It was just they had to do that because they really wanted just to uh, show you some new cars or so, show you some detergent or whatever. So. I focus at least 70% of my attention on the ads and the peripheral content. Have you ever seen one of those great compilations on YouTube of newscasters who are all, you know, during the pandemic, they're essentially, you know, passing down the, 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 not the mandates, but the, the the strongly recommended talking points of you know distancing and masking and eventually vaccines. And there's this great supercut of newscasters uh, urging people to get the vaccine. And then it will cut to the end of the segment, and it'll say, "Brought to you by Pfizer." Right? <laughs> so when you look at that, you're just like, "Okay, yeah." So we we just did exactly and this is not a judgment on how anybody feels about vaccines it's just saying that you're watching paid content and that doesn't give you any pause at all that that maybe the 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 content of what these newscasters are telling you might be influenced by the fact that the sponsor is the drug company right why don't we ever hear about uh you know, so much is made in the media recently of, you know, I mentioned him earlier, but Alex Jones uh, being made to pay $900 million to the families of Sandy Hook. But, but what about what about all the payouts that these big drug companies, the Sackler family, has to pay out for the opioid crisis that has killed millions and millions of people? Our attention is just focused on the wrong things perpetually. I mean, there have been two mass shootings recently and one of them has been paid attention to and the other one really hasn't and why is that and the university of idaho i don't know if anyone's been to moscow idaho i i haven't been for a long time but it's an odd odd uh town in an odd state that is it, scenically i think one of the most beautiful parts of the world uh, the University of Idaho is, is very hard to pin down in any clear way because it really is a, a very strange mix of uh, different uh, social groups. It's a real party school. It's a, it's, it became an incredibly alternative school. It's, it's just a mishmash of things. And here we have this, you know, pretty intense, violent crime where four people get stabbed. And they're those two chicks who always, you see them always appearing together like twins. And uh, I'm sorry, every time I see them, I just think, oh, th those are murder victims. You know, I just can't, I could never have imagined them differently. Uh, and I don't know how to process that story. It's kind of like the... the uh, the Gabby Pepito story that we covered or whatever that, I mean, it, it seems like whatever the media wants to use as their platform to sell ads. And I think anyone who believes that there is any kind of firewall anymore 
whether in print or in uh, TV or streaming, whatever, uh, there is no firewall between the newsroom, editorial, and the ad department. There just is not. There is not at all. And this is the right. whole issue. Uh, people go, well, I, I want to skip the ads. Well, good luck with that. This whole, yeah. this whole culture is an ad. And I can say that because I've worked in advertising. I don't know how people can think differently, you know? Right. And we used to have them nicely segmented out. They were called commercials. And you knew when the commercial break was coming up, whenever I would be watching my cartoons as a young child. or I used to stay up late and watch Conan O'Brien. That was my favorite show. That show used to be really, really funny. You'll have to, you'll have to trust me on that. No, no, I, I remember uh, that. I think I understand exactly. I think that was a real, uh, you know, he was truly an heir of, of some of the late night TV show stuff that, that I grew up. With. No, I get it. Originally, anyway. Where he's at? Where yeah, where he's at now? <laughs> well, they all the talk show hosts kind of went downhill. But anyway, the point is, is that they would get to the commercial break and. You'd take a bathroom break or go get a snack or maybe you'd even watch them but it was this clearly segmented thing now we still have those in terms of youtube ads but think about i mean using uh safari on my iphone to surf the internet i mean these websites are are unreadable now i mean half the tiny little iphone screen is taken up by geico ads and state farm ads and pfizer ads and this 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 and it's just, uh, it, it, it's the one part so far of cyberpunk that it really got right. You know, in all these old uh, cyberpunk stories from the 70s and 80s, you know, you would just see advertising everywhere. It would be popping up on your heads-up display, on your, uh, you know, your built-in retina camera. And, you know, we don't have cool cameras in our eyeballs, which is probably for the best, but uh, we do get those ads everywhere so maybe in a sense this media hygiene talk is really advertising hygiene just just having a, a clear sense of when something is being sold to you which is always well I think it's two part I think there's explicit advertising I think advertising is so much the basis of all commercial culture in the modern era that it it, it takes so many different forms but um, you have very explicit and direct and that appears almost refreshing sometimes. And then you have a constant destabilization, a constant low frequency, uh, stat, you know, kind of um, gray noise that, that disturbs thinking, that makes you more susceptible to uh, other forms of direct advertising. So the whole process is just to completely fill brain airspace, mind airspace, uh, with either message or susceptibility to message. And the, mm -hmm. the latter part, I mm -hmm. think, is, is really, you know, really important. And I'll give you a weird analogy. I, uh, this may not sort of resonate with everyone, but I, if, if you've ever lived in a regional town that has a prominent prison in it, uh, you... Yep. It's very odd because you, you end up knowing people who have something to do. They're employed by the prison in some way. And oh, yeah. they will share mm -hmm. a little bit about what's going on, but not, not much. And they're wary of how people think of them. 
uh, and you know there might be a couple of, of well-known people imprisoned in that facility. So you get a little, and it's always kind of there, and you drive past it, and you're confronted with the weird sodium lights and whatever sort of barriers are there, and it makes you, you know, it gives you a psychological sense of discomfort uh, that's the, always there, and you learn how to package, you know, a distance from it. Um, but gradually, if you're a little bit nuanced and, and, and you live in the town for a while, you start to see these ripples of other things. Oddly, families coalesce around these prisons so they can be closer, you know, to the people who are imprisoned. And drug networks and contraband networks form. And the division between the, the prison community and the larger community starts to blur and change shape so that when you drive past the very structural barriers and the ominous alienating lights and all the things that are physically there, you can't quite package that as being so discreetly distinct from the rest of the world. You go, yeah, I'm driving around, I'm free, I'm, I'm, I'm not part of that whole scene, and I only know one person who's a prison guard there. And, uh, but the more you look around, the more you see this rippling thing, and the, and the margins, the barriers, the membranes, the membranes, are a lot more fluid and uh, they there's a lot of things osmosing backwards and forwards you know yeah 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 no I um in Lawton we had uh, we have Wacken Hut which is a great name for a prison and my father-in-law and brother-in-law yeah both my father-in-law and brother-in-law uh, worked as guards there and many of my friends were inmates there but that also makes me think when I lived in El Paso, I knew a lot of border activists who were very anti or pro, I should say, immigration. And we also have uh, border patrol guards in the extended family, right? And strangely enough, that, like Mexican-American border patrol guards. It's very tricky, right? These aren't white people that we're talking about. Um, and I think that borders in a similar way to the prison have that osmosing effect, that membrane effect, where everything, you know, the overused term is liminal space. Yes. But you do you do start to feel that way, right? Walls take on a different kind of. You start noticing the walls everywhere. Like, hey, what's a what's that fence doing there? What's with all these fences and and lines of demarcation? So I that's that's where where my my mind went, and I love this idea that any town that has a prominent uh, to expand it out even further, just any kind of industry, how that industry colors the aesthetic of of the entire town. Totally, it does, and we freak, we we become uh, completely uh, narcotically disconnected from these very structural realities. Because well we, we don't we don't know what's going on. I mean in the town where I live, I don't know if I mentioned this on, on show or not, but uh, there's this facility that's involved in uh, something to do with the computer chips in security badges or cards that all federal employees need to use at whatever level of clearance they have for whatever they're doing. And I mean this is a big, big operation and there are two footprints locally 
and I see cars behind the chain link fences. I never see anybody going to those. I don't see a factory shift change. And I ask people about, you know, I said, do you know anybody? Oh, no. I said, well, where are these people coming from, you know? And going back to the Area 51 thing, you know, there are still the Janet flights out of McCarran or Harry Reid International Airport every day that leave. I love the code name Janet. That's just so fantastic. They fly to Area 51 and know, you know, well, who are those people, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and who are those people who stalked me the other day? Well, I triggered a sensor the other day. Uh, they There are motion sensors all over the space. You know, they don't need guys with armed, uh, you know, encampments. They're, they're floating around, believe me. Uh, but, you know, suddenly this really just super ominous uh, SUV pulls up. And these two guys, you know... Always two. They don't need more than two. But they're not showing you any badges. They're not going, you know, you need to leave. <laughs> they're, it's a good idea to leave before they get too close, <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And we... Yeah, they, 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 are the, <laughs> they are the badge, essentially. They don't need the badge because, you know... You just take one look at them, and you're like, okay, I don't want any part of this. Moving along. Well, you know, and to me, this is this is where I kind of get off the boat with people talking in the media and, you know, at street level about threats to democracy and all this stuff. I, it's not, it's not, I'm not concerned about that, too, and I did vote, and I believe in civic engagement, and I... I, I am trying to maintain a, a normal, respectable, civically engaged, uh, adult, mature, you know, profile. But on the other hand, when I see so many secret installations very close to me that I have no idea who is in charge of, you can't find any information out, and I've tried, uh, you start to think, wait a minute. I mean, and these are big structural things. These are millions and millions of dollars of amazing technology. And those are only the things that they, those are only the toys they feel confident in showing in relatively open, you know, uh, airspace. And even then you still have to go, you have to work right. to, to go see them, right. you know. Uh Right. Threats to democracy. What? What are people talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a lot of power in being able to read the news and first of all notice when something is an advertisement, even when it's presented as news. There's also a lot of power in being able to say, "Well, I don't care about that. That's not that's not a big deal." Being able to discern what's a big deal from not a big deal. I think would make people 20 times happier in their day-to-day lives because you got people walking around, you know, furious that Elon Musk bought Twitter. And it's it just doesn't make it's is it really is it that big of a deal? Is it that big of a deal? Well, he's going to let Nazis back on the on the platform. Like, okay, so block them. 
I, I don't I don't understand what the problem is here. You know, are, are the Nazis going to use Twitter to hunt you down and kill your whole family? Well, if if not, then I th- I think that that's just something that you'll have to deal with on a person by person basis. But to move it out of the Twitter realm, you know, again, people just need to uh, be able to to say, okay, this this is the way that I'm constructing my life. These are the things that I'm interested in and that I care about. And so this is what I'm actually going to to focus on uh, in terms of understanding the big picture of what's going on. And I'm telling you, once you get a good big picture, which, you know, the, the parapolitical aspect of it can't be ignored. I think having a solid parapol- parapolitical, uh, you know, supernatural framework to put over a lot of this stuff is, is of vital importance because it brings in the the story and the myth elements that are so lacking from our current narrative. But once you do that, there's a qualitative change in your state of mind on a day-to-day basis because you're out of the narrative and you're in, in a story. And I think that, you know, this is uh, there are a couple of things just really uh, just jump out at me. One, I, I, I think I mentioned I've recovered all these uh photographs that from going back oh well certainly 10 years that I thought I'd lost and there's uh, a couple of shots of my walkabouts in African townships some of which were pretty rough and a little bit scary of course Uh, I was always alone but there's one shot that you know I am I think I'll post because it, it does make a point it's not technically good uh, it's 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 not in focus. It's uh, oversaturated. I in fact shot it on a disposable camera because I was out for a big wander and uh, I had a camera malfunction. I thought, well, I've got to do something. So I got this uh, cheap disposable camera at this funky sort of corner market sort of thing. And but when I show it to you, you'll go, wow. Because if it's not good technically, it's excellent psychologically because it captures the complete swarm of color and confusion of boundaries and the immersive quality of an African street scene. You know, there is no vantage point. There is no ideal viewing distance. You are immersed and embedded within the scene. And that is the social point, you know? There is no way to to find that viewing distance. And this is one of the things, if we in our media hygiene uh, pursuits, if we recognize that that that's kind of an illusion, you know, we have to really create a, a model of that in order to get some distance, you know. Otherwise, we are immersed in it, embedded in it, enmeshed, you know, and there is no other way to deal with it. Um, the other thing I thought about is. Um, it's a really simple aphorism of mine, but it's uh, it's one that got attention. And I think it's really, I think it's good. I think it's very apt. Do you know the best place to hide an elephant? Where? A herd of elephants. That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Exactly yeah. 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 No, that I mean that is. So that's the key, right? That's that's the best uh, aphorism for what we're talking about right now. I'm of the mind too that there are 
classified documents, obviously, that will never be made public, and if they are, they'll be so redacted that you won't be able to make head, like heads or tails of it. But I also think that there's an attitude to people in power today where the, if they just say, you know, just release everything. Just put everything out there. It won't make a difference anyway. You know, like you can go on the FBI's website and the CIA's website and you can see some crazy shit. There's a C of my favorite declassified CIA documents from 1974 and it's about remote viewing the planet Mars uh, 3 million years ago. And they document how this guy describes uh, the beings that he sees and the pyramids and uh and this is real stuff. So if you just release it all, nobody's going to sort through it anyway because they're concerned about, uh, you know, the price of Taylor Swift tickets on Ticketmaster. Well, we have had to introduce new measurements for the amount of data. NPR did report this story. It's worth listeners following up on this because all you, all you need to know is that the new standards, the new units of measurement are so radically extreme that no head can get around them, that they're meaningless. So even just in, in yeah. presenting that, you think, oh, this is too hard. I mean, everything is just completely too hard for everyone. So everyone settles into this fog. And it was, it's the most beautiful sort of narcotic uh, form of camouflage there can ever be. Just put everything out there. You know, there doesn't need to be mm -hmm. any, you know, really. And any structural walls or fences or, you know, motion sensor protected areas, uh, you sort of maybe think, well, that could just be a shop front. You know, maybe that's just a, yeah. uh, a disguise of the whole thing. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think that, uh, do you have any plans for Thanksgiving? Well, I'm, I'm, I, I, I don't at the moment, except I, I am going to make sure that I, I, I call it Thanksgiving and not Friendsgiving, uh, mm -hmm. and that mm -hmm. I don't get involved in trying to uh, completely rewire uh, American history around that particular occasion, because that would be one of many uh, tasks in that line to do and I don't feel that is my number one priority you know what about you uh, yeah we're going down to hang out with the with the fam and I have we've actually had two Thanksgivings now we had one uh, this past weekend so Stacy's family came up from uh, El Paso and we ate food there and then this one will be hanging out with my mother and uh, my stepdad he's got pheasant on the menu oh wow yeah, fantastic for Thanksgiving pheasants have got a really but gamey you, sort of taste I think that's great yeah it's gonna be good and I get super hyped on holidays I think that uh, you know people walk around just miserable miserable all the time Everything sucks. Nothing's cool. They hate everything. And then you're like, oh, but what about what about holidays? And they say, well, I don't care about holidays. We might have a Friendsgiving. And I wonder if there's ever just a little bit of self-reflection 
with maybe that's why you're upset maybe that's maybe that's why nothing's cool maybe these uh holidays and traditions and history have an a way of orienting people within their time period and culture and you know maybe you're maybe just call it thanksgiving you you might you might actually get something out of that well you know i remember growing up that there was a school emphasis that maybe should be changed where we did use uh soap and and water-based paint and drew pictures on the windows of our elementary school and one of my classmates who was a really good artist she would uh draw all her pilgrims with the head heads of turkeys and they were really forensically mm. intense turkeys and mr lowry <laughs> the principal would always get really upset and uh this happened over a couple of years but the teachers would go wow but she's such a good artist and I've, I do remember that sort of uh, engagement with American uh, history in the sense of the mythology surrounding the pilgrims, which maybe does need to really be revised. But for most people, I think, and I think particularly at this time of just battering inflation, uh, media overload, and a, a depressive cloud hanging over everything, most people, I think, if they're looking forward to the holidays, are thinking about family, you know, and thinking yeah, about their right, own right. personal networks that, that they have some influence over. And to me, that's only a good thing, you know. Mm -hmm. I agree. I think that that is the, that's the key focus. And I think that a lot of these cultural arguments can be given in a real disingenuous, distractive you know, elephant in a herd of elephants style ways, um, because we always have to be, remember when we're being advertised to. So I like that. I like that as a wrap up for the conversation section of the show, because yeah, I mean, family. Yes, friends, but but family. Well, that's the structural thing that you can't ignore. I mean, we're we're no one saying that family is all you know, such a great thing and perfect. And it's not also the source of, um, you know, so many of our problems and neuroses and crises. But nonetheless, it it's structurally as real as anything can get. I mean, Gus is as real as anything that you're going to come across, you know. Uh, and that's also a measure of, of sanity, health, potential happiness, and let's get focused on those sorts of things and and not be so distanced into the virtual simulation of of society mm -hmm. that that the media hands us um and i think that might be a nice time to roll out the tool which i'm excited for these i'm, I'm hyped for the tool and tip today well okay the tool has a has a nice kicker to it too because it links back to something that listeners may think that we uh forgot this episode or uh are just not dealing with which is david's imaginative challenge this because we're, we are going into the holiday season i thought for the first time i'm going to roll out a kind of idea as my tool for the episode. But then for that to suggest an imaginative challenge that David is going to bring back to the table 
next episode. So he is getting a little bit of, of background in this. But I think when people hear what this is, they'll think, oh, look, yeah, he, he, it's only fair to give him a week to think about this because we want a really uh, high-energy, uh, cool uh, answer or response, and it, it just wouldn't be possible to do that in real time. Um, so are we ready? This is, this is interesting, and it's very relevant to what we've been talking about. The, the idea is to expend some of our intelligence those of us who think of ourselves as being intelligent, on the communicative art form of creating an experiment. This is one of the things we're not teaching young sciences, you know. Uh, it's very difficult to have an, a, a kind of mind that can develop experiment ideas that are actually practical and can be done in the real world. Um, if anyone follows, you know, the theoretical physics of today, you think, yeah, well, that sounds like some interesting sort of, you know, mysticism and some high-level math that I really don't understand. But where is there any possibility of actually experimenting on, you know, with that in the real world? No, not even with trillions right. of dollars. Uh, so mm -hmm. there's a real problem with that. Whereas Rupert Sheldrake, who is one of our heroes, who's often considered a heretic and is not part of the, the official science establishment, even though, you know, he's, <laughs> I don't know, uh, a, a very high-level Cambridge scientist, I think. Um, at least that's his training. And I think he does have a good idea about experiments. But this is one that I've run. And it does take a little bit of, of setup, but not much. You know, it's... We're talking about physical, pragmatic achievability. Um, but imagine a group that you assemble a group of 10 people, perhaps for a larger workshop theme, which is what I've done. But 10 is a good number. And as one of the starting points, this is about shared perspective. It's about the notion of changing perspectives. It's about a lot of things. But I have a device which is about the size of, um, well, it's sort of an old-style desktop computer. It, in fact, is uh, a cannibalized piece of equipment that I've kind of made. Uh, and I don't let anyone see it because I, 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 I'm, it's proprietary, you know. Uh, but it's based on uh, some German hi-fi equipment of yesteryear, which still looks really cool and some medical imaging uh, equipment from a few years back that I harvested. But I've basically put together this kind of a black box, if you like. But it does have the capacity to show that it's turned on. Okay, that's really important. There's a little visual scope kind of thing in it. I'm not sure what this, it's kind of like an oscilloscope, an old fashioned one of those. Right, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I present it to 10 people and I say, this, we're going to just do a very simple uh, exercise here. I'm going to turn this device on, and it emits sounds of various frequencies. And I'm going to ask people to put up their hands the moment that they hear a sound. If you've brought a notebook, please just make a quick note of what kind of sound. Was it a ring? Was it a whistle? Was it a hiss or a click? Uh, 
I said, is, is that all clear? And everyone goes, yeah, that, 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 that's fine. I said, there's no right or wrong answer here. Uh, I have, you know, some hearing issues. We all have hearing issues. They're all things that we, we don't hear. I can guarantee you that there's no sound that's going to be emitted that I think will be harmful in any way. So don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. But be right. prepared, please, to, to, to put up your hand, and I, I would like you to hold your hand up, keep it up so I can see and make note of it. And if you would like to just make a note about describing that sound, that could be very helpful at the end of, of the discussion when we do our debrief. So everyone nods, and they're all set to go, right? So I turn on the machine, and they can see at visual level that it appears to be electronically on and then the experiment begins okay <laughs> well there are two critical things about this uh, I've, I've kind of made the thing look official and it does look official although it may not look familiar nobody can really tell what kind of machine it is but if you're told that it emits a sound I think you're going to believe it, and I think that there's, I've never had anyone from any frame uh, say, well, what the hell is that, you know? They'll, they'll go with this to a point, and so they're listening, and they're listening. Oh, and a hand shoots up. Okay, I take note of that. Listening. That hand goes up again. And that person... Same hand? Yes. And the person goes, didn't you hear that? And a few more seconds go along. And another hand goes up in another side of the room. And this person is really going, come on, you've, you, you have to have heard that. They're really extroverted about it. And the thing goes on. The second person's hand goes up, and they're just absolutely floored. They just simply can't believe. And a couple of people whose hands have not gone up are starting to get really, they're starting to, their expressions are changing. It's not, it, it's hard to characterize their reaction. First person's hand goes up again and stays up. And a third hand. fourth hand goes up and of course what's going on well there's no sound at all right. there's no sound at all and one person I have I had taken into my confidence and tipped off and that one person triggers a change in the mood and at minimum, four people come on board saying they've heard something when there has been absolutely nothing to be heard. And they, there's always at least one of those converted who talks just fluently about the nature of the sounds they've heard, describing in great detail the frequency, the depth, and the resonance of the sound. And sometimes, I, I had one group 
and I'm going back to my notes about how this worked, where the conversion rate was uh, up to seven people. Now, I think that's an interesting experiment. I do. I think that says a lot in very physical, structural terms about suggestibility, about group response. Uh, and always the key to it is the tone of voice, the uh, vociferousness and the interpretive dance quality, if you like, of the people. If, if there is a right. real extrovert who is uh, really on the case with this, and these are people I don't know. I, I, they're not shills in that, in that deeper sense of someone who's on my team that I've inserted. I've just taken someone on board and uh, said, look, you know, will you be in on this? And, and they go, yeah, well, that sounds kind of interesting. And, and they get all the more interested in that because they claim some ownership of it. They're not working for me. And they're not even really working with me. They're really just you know, playing a part on their own and having some fun with it. But it changes the dynamic because, and I think it's a beautiful example of how the media work. Here's this box that does not do anything, but it looks official. It looks technological, you know, and mm -hmm. you're told that it, it works and it's on and it's going to emit sounds. And the question is, well, are you hearing those sounds? Well, if you're not, maybe there's something wrong with you. You know, yeah. Why can't you hear? What's 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 your problem, man? And you, <laughs> and I, I would love to do this. I'd love to get some funding and do this with some real groups over just you know maybe ten, twelve different iterations of this, and have very different personalities of the insiders uh, to show that it's not just one technique that is convincing and buffaloing anyone. And of course, some people. Uh, just remain, you know, they just didn't hear anything. But there are painfully, painfully few examples of this where someone goes, oh, this is just bullshit, man, you know, and they start laughing and going, no, there's no sound, you know, total confidence in their mm -hmm. perception. Mm -hmm. No, 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 mm -hmm. no, that is not the case. That is not the case. I'm not saying that would never happen and hasn't happened, but it is not what the presentation of it's not what you would see if uh it was say a three video camera deal you know over uh, uh, over 10 of these it's not it, people do not have that level of confidence uh i i did something similar in oklahoma with uh red dirt red clay from the banks of length lake thunderbird i had uh i had my friend eric get a bin what's up mom Oh, okay, good. Oh, good, good, good. All right, thank you. Uh, I had my friend Eric get a bin full of red clay from the banks, and he was doing a music festival. This was just before COVID. He was, had uh, bands constantly playing in his, in his uh, art space, and it was very crowded. It was the, the whole Norman Music Festival thing was going on, so people were coming in and out. And I had them take the clay, whoever wanted to participate, and shape it into an animal of their choice. I have some great pictures of some of the animals that people molded out of the clay. And then I had a questionnaire of six completely random questions. For different people, it was different things. And I had the same reaction to this. Some people 
were like, what is this for? And I said, oh, well, I'm putting something together, but I can't really talk about it yet. And they would immediately say, oh, oh so this is bullshit. I'd be like, no, 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 not bullshit. It's, you know, it's the thing. But I had some, uh, oddly enough, it was always women. I had women who, who would keep asking, you know, well, is this for like, is this magic? Is this like, what, what is it? And I wouldn't answer. And then they'd bring their friends back with them and they would explain not just what I was doing, but the purpose behind it that they had invented in their head to their friend, <laughs> you know, like the, he's doing a magical ritual and it's, it's to make sure that we have rain for, you know, <laughs> I was like, I didn't say any of those words. That's fantastic. That's exactly what we're talking about. Okay, well, so for next week, your imaginative challenge. Imagine this. This is the, the larger framework. Imagine that you and I are pitching for getting some real funding. We're launching this kind of experimental alchemical institute of uh, media hygiene and lost explorers investigation into psychic defense. Choose an angle, a topic, something that you think is one of the elephants of today that we're just so at pains to avoid. And a practically achievable experiment uh, that would work in a group of 10 to 20 people max uh, that you could orchestrate along these lines that has a little bit of that stage magic theater sort of component mm -hmm. and that takes us to that point of where because what are people making up what you know this is what what stage magicians say that that magic is really the stories that audiences tell themselves you know this is really the a very old it's the heart of, of stage magic and I think if we could apply those disciplines to media hygiene and a little bit more alertness in terms of psychic defense about the narratives and the rhetorics of today it would really really be fun and it would really catch on so that's your challenge something that is achievable that wouldn't cost an enormous amount in materials and something you know a good experiment is also open-ended it's not trying to prove a point really it's it, it is it's experimental in the sense it's trying to test a hypothesis maybe absolutely surely but not always it's also meant to develop you know more definition to refine a position and the less you try to structure something the more honest and open-ended you are about the expectations the better the experiment will turn out to be, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm on it. I've got notes already, but I will be back with something very, very cool. This is right up my alley. This is funny that you mention it. It's uh, stuff that I, I think about on a regular basis. Well, how, how would I prove these things? I think it's or a great discipline. It's a great discipline. You know, and think about it, it's so much more dimensionally interesting than what sources am I going to cite to support my argument? You know, anyone can do that. No, this is dimensionally engaged with how would I go about investigating and performing this in the world with a group of people? You know, I think that's really, right. really cool. And I'm not at all surprised that you do that uh, because I think that's what, that's, that's kind of the lost explorer idea of and it's a, the crystal radio idea of, of trying to do it ourselves a little bit and and think about 
how can we gather data that's our own, you know? Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, especially when you have the freedom not being a part of academia or making any claim to being a scientist, you can bring in the occult and the magic and the alchemical element to these experiments too. Makes it fun. I wish more magicians would do experiments. I, I hope that they will, and I think perhaps if, if it's to survive as an art form, I think, uh, I think there are more uh, people getting into that with that sort of mindset. And also the fact that as academia becomes more uh, vulnerable to, to the rot uh, that is affecting it now, and, and more, uh, more loose in its lack of rigor and, and genuine intelligence, and more tight-sphinctered in its rhetorical uh, vulnerabilities. Um, it's getting sort of a double whammy, you know, a serious tight acidness and a serious loss of intellectual rigor. Uh, and that's what you have in terms of academia today. Uh, and a lot of, of then instant follow along with the orthodoxy, you know? Keep that job, baby, keep that job. <laughs> So my tip, are we ready for that? Yes, yes, ready for the tip. Okay. A tip and a dream. Yeah, yeah, I do, both. Okay, the, 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 I, I sort of foreshadowed the tip in terms of, uh, and it, well, this specific example, but I think some of these, if, if, you, if anyone is uh, checking out these major mainstream media websites, you know, the major news channels, major news vehicles. There's always these little fun fact, you know, paid content, sponsored information sort of things. And one that has uh, always catches my eye because I'm, I'm very interested in uh, the power, the hypnotic power of photography and how the photograph and its related forms have informed our notions of the modern era and maybe have, have influenced our sense of reality uh, more than any other technological innovation, more than the telephone, more than the internet. I mean, I really think photography in all its forms, uh, from slow motion to microscopy to you know, uh, astronomical, I think it's just the influence is so, so powerful. But I get stuck on this, the, these headlines, these, these little features that you can click on that say, historic figures who lived long enough to be photographed. Now really think about that for a moment. That is an enormously peculiar phrase that appears constantly in the news, constantly. It, I found it eight times just this morning. Uh, historic figures who lived long enough to be photographed. You could unpack that as a career, you know, across, I think, at least six different academic disciplines. Uh, it's a remarkable statement about the nature of the modern era and what we define uh, as history. I mean, think about that. It's a very, very peculiar idea that somehow 
photography is intimately related to our boundary lines. You know, we were talking about, you know, membranes and boundary lines and fence lines, but our notions of history, they have a lot to do and hinge on the, the time period in which uh, photography has become possible and has become ubiquitous. And I think that if you look around at paid content suggestions generally, you will find out more about what are the real trigger points in our society today. You could really do an inventory. David and I are big on, on inventorizing things. It, it's a very simple technique, but it's very powerful. Have a really good squiz, as the Australians would say, at paid content or from our sponsor or, you know, all of these peripheral little, you know, bits of fun information. And you'll see that they're so much more relevant to what people are really thinking about and interested in uh, than the major news stories are. And that's why advertisers are paying, you know, think about it. They wouldn't be there if they weren't working, you know? Right. That's right. the key. Exactly. Yeah, if they, were, if they were paying as much as they have to pay for advertising and they weren't doing anything, they wouldn't exist. <laughs> it, it doesn't make any business sense. Although I have heard, and you would know more about this than me because you were in advertising, but apparently a lot of uh, online advertising uh, in terms of Google searches... Apparently that doesn't have as big of a reach as one might think. But in general, right, the, 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 the paid content, that hidden content that outlets like BuzzFeed do, yeah, I, I, I don't think you go to BuzzFeed, because uh, I certainly don't. But if you do, some of the articles that you click will be, you know, top 10 signs that your teeth are going to fall out, brought to you by Crest, right? And it's a, it's a listicle, it's an article, but it's... It's there to make you buy something. And uh, obviously commercials. Uh, commercials are insanely powerful. I think that, who is it? Is it Tom Brady who's currently being sued because he appeared in a commercial for that ST, SFX, STX uh, crypto exchange that that was, you know, the Ponzi scheme of our generation? Right. Are you familiar with yeah, this story? Yeah, just, the, just, like, yeah. It's, uh, it, it's a huge debacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I'm going too far off track. But I think that that puts a really nice uh, bow on everything that we talked about. If there's one takeaway from this episode that's so important, it's maybe pay less attention to the news and more attention to the ads that you see all the time. Everything interesting happens out of the corner of our eye, you know. The most mm. radical assertion someone can, can make is what's, what's really important for central focus. Because I don't think that any of us are in that much control of our attention to be able to really say where that lies, you know. And uh, the best magicians, the best, the, the, the sane cognitive psychologists will all tell you, is that what you really think you're paying attention to? Okay, <laughs> come on over here. We've got something that, that uh, we don't want to show you, you know? Oh, and suddenly everyone's interested. You know, it's like, come on, people. People want to think that there's so much, uh, you know, more... Uh, well, they're, they're clever and cynical and shrewd in, in ways that... Nah, no, they're not. Right, right. That makes sense. 
we have a dream today? Yeah, this is. Um, I think that there. I, I've, I'm. I think the origin of this dream has to do with some questions I have about these pencil juniper uh, trees that I inherited on my property line that are just, they're not doing well. And we've had more rain than we had in, you know, the two years before I showed up. And I'm kind of, I'm kind of mystified why they're not doing well. But then I also uh, reread uh, a Paul Bowles story. And his collected stories, I think, are, are just beautiful. Uh, works. We don't have writers like Paul Bowles anymore. Uh, he was just so fluent at, at putting a reader into uh, foreign environments on many different levels, not just the, the famous cultural differences of North Africa or Mexico that he's famous for. But he has a lovely story called The Circular Valley, which uh, mm. is really about the anima or animus of a, of a particular region. And it's a lovely uh, charactered voice of a kind of spirit of place and how humans might appear within that. I find it quite haunting. Uh, I would love to make a piece of music in response to it. I just don't, I think that's beyond my, my skill set. But uh, so I was thinking about spirits of place. But interestingly, uh, this was uh, a dream in which I was. I had a real position within it, but passive. I was watching uh, an old uh, retro, magically retro television set. And think about that. That's not a dream that people could have had 100, 200 years ago. You know, it, you, you could have been watching a play, okay, but somehow the idea of watching a film or television, that, that goes back to this idea of historic figures who lived long enough to be photographed. There has been a shift in the, in the modern mind. So I'm watching this sky blue with fake uh, brass leg sort of satellite Jetson age TV and it's in a kind of somewhat colorized but black and white scene and I've had no explanation about what I'm watching but it's a beautiful very intensely landscaped backyard and there isn't quite topiary but there sort of is there's lots of hedges and, and junipers and uh, all sorts of shrubbery uh, that's everywhere and, but there's a strange vibe about it. And I know, without knowing anything about the show or what I'm watching, that there is something kind of alive about this backyard. And into it mm -hmm. comes a character who's really right over the top. He has this huge, beautiful, waxed handlebar mustache and a kind of slouch hat, but generally doesn't look like a historic figure except for the fact that he does have a sword. and But he looks theatrical. He, he could be a villain. He could be a swashbuckling hero. He's kind of more, more he's, not, he, he's not reassuring in a heroic sort of way, but he comes into this backyard. And two of the plants, they're small, they're sort of like four feet high, take on the shape of dinosaurs, like a brontosaurus and a stegosaurus. And they're made out of, of juniper or shrubbery. 
but they've clearly come to life in response to his presence. And my first thought is, uh oh. But he's really ready for them. He pulls out the sword. He's like completely in touch with the anima or animus yeah. of the backyard. And his theatricality of the sword in his hat and his great mustache. And I'm thinking, oh, it's okay. He's got it under control. But then behind him, the rhododendron forms into this very large, amorphous, but still defined shape and just completely engulfs him. And I woke up thinking, uh, well, the sword, the hat, and the mustache was good good at first with the smaller little, you know, creatures that formed, but there was a bigger presence. Whatever the anima form was, it could take on any form there. And he wasn't prepared for that. This uh, is, the amount of synchronicities in this show is crazy, but I just wrote a scene in my novel last week, uh, last weekend in fact, about a very, a character who has a sword, who goes to visit a futuristic cyberpunk uh, botanical garden in which uh, a kind, I don't call it anima, although I might lift that, uh, moves through the, the plants and makes them a bit combative. That's really funny that, you know, once again, we're, we're on this uh, wavelength. We've got to figure out what the, what, what the wavelength even it's, is. But whatever it is, we're, we're on it. It's very odd. It is because it jumps levels to I would have never have guessed the Taylor Swift connection earlier. That seems very peculiar. And the, just the way you it's, – it's also it's not just the topic, you know, having – been thinking of it's the way it's it, it, it's the way we're thinking about things simultaneously it's very odd very odd it's very it's very strange but also very cool 